Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hi, true crime friends. I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster. And today's episode is my favorite episode so far. I have spent much more time researching this than I have anything else we've done. And I didn't think that there was ever a dull moment during that research. Today's episode is on the history of McNeil Island Penitentiary. Historically, McNeil Island was much different than today. In 1867, the government purchased just over 27 acres of land on McNeil Island with the idea of building a prison, and they did just that. Opening the doors to this prison located in the Puget Sound in 1875. Washington wasn't a state just yet. It was still a territory, and its new prison housed nine prisoners. I was shocked when I read about the conditions the prisoners were kept in in the early days. Solitary confinement was pretty standard, and a bag would be placed over the inmate's head, forcing them to think about their actions. Prisoners would remain shackled for unhealthy amounts of time, leaving sores on their arms and legs. I read that one man remained shackled for so long, he was never able to stand completely straight again. Now, I have no mercy when it comes to people who have committed horrendous crimes, you know, like murder. But in the prison's first 10 years, 30% of the inmates were held on charges of selling alcohol to Indians. And since that's total crap, I feel horrible for the people who endured those conditions. Murderers today don't even endure those conditions. But as times changed, so did the prison. For as many people that claimed that they hated McNeil Island Prison, there are others that claimed they wanted to serve their time at McNeil. McNeil offered beautiful views of the mountains, water, there was forests, and plenty of wildlife. In 1927, the government purchased 67 more acres of land to create the prison farm. This is how the McNeil Island Work Program was born. Inmates would learn farming skills. With cows, pigs, and a garden, the island prison was becoming self-sustaining. At one time, there was even a cannery. Making more land purchases over the years, the government had purchased the remaining acreage by 1941. This was how the residents that had been living on the island over the years were made to leave. The government even relocated the island cemetery to the mainland. But there was one grave that was not a candidate for exhumation. A tree had grown around the casket of a child. So as the government relocated the people living and dead one by one, one boy would remain. His family and their descendants having special permission to visit the island and this special permission would go on for years, even as the prison changed hands from federal to state. There were 52 houses on the island. Most were rented to families of the prison employees. Families recall a fondness for living on the island, 
They felt a sense of community there that they haven't felt since. The island even had a school that the children attended and its own post office. Inmates that gained trust in the work program were able to have jobs like driving the school bus. The children of the island didn't fear the inmates. They had fond memories of them. One stated that the inmate who drove the school bus would draw the children pictures, getting joy out of seeing the kids' happy faces every day. The kids were taught to have respect for the inmates, and there was special punishments if the inmates were to bother the residents of the island. I cannot imagine a life where my husband or I worked at a prison and we raised our family so close to it that our children interacted with the inmates daily. But for these families, it was their normal everyday life and they were happy. In 2000, the population of the island was 1,516. Officer Gray worked at the McNeil Island Penitentiary back in 1961 and ran the cell block Charles Manson was kept on. According to Kiro7.com News, he remembers Charlie as being no problem, just a pest, complaining about everything for days at a time. Guards seem to just remember Manson's love for playing music and how Manson found Scientology, something they think he put to use later while twisting it into his favor to get women to prostitute themselves for him. You know, just general manipulation. Another well-known inmate was Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz. He served time on McNeil Island from 1909 to 1912, when he stabbed a guard and was then transferred to Levensworth Penitentiary in Kansas. This would be where he would end up in solitary confinement, reading books on birds and making all of his little bird friends. He kept so many birds during his time in Kansas that he was eventually given a separate cell for his birds. After years of solitary confinement and writing three books on birds, he had basically become an expert. He even had a little lab in his cell at times, and he was able to identify and develop cures for diseases in these birds. At one point, they tried to remove the birds from him, and another bird expert actually wrote in, asking them not to, saying that his research was really valuable. And people petitioned for him to be able to keep his birds. That was when he got the separate cell for his birds. But he was eventually transferred to Alcatraz, where he was not able to have his birds, but did get the nickname the Birdman of Alcatraz. Over the years, there were about a hundred escape attempts at McNeil Island. The residents on the island stated that this was really the only time that they felt nervous. The residents were told to stay in their homes with their doors locked until the alarm stopped sounding. One resident said they didn't fear the inmates at this time, what caused fear in them was the teenagers who would jump in their cars and try to track down the action. Out of the about 100 escape attempts, it's estimated that only a dozen or less made it across the sound. They don't have an official number because they're not sure if some of them might have drowned trying. There was an area on one side of the island that at times had shallow enough water to wade through to a small peninsula, 
but it was said that the inmates didn't know enough about the geography of the island to know which side this was on and to make it there. One inmate was so lost on the island that he jumped into an inland lake during an escape attempt, thinking he was jumping into the Puget Sound. I bet he was so mad when he surfaced on the opposite shore and guards were waiting there for him to escort him back to his cell. In 1968, Kenneth Pendleton had been training for his escape for months. Years later, during an interview, he admitted to doing sit-ups, punching a punching bag, and running 10 miles a day in preparation. Kenneth took freezing cold showers to prepare his body for the shock of the cold water in the sound. Kenneth and about six other inmates were leaving church service for the day when instead of going back to their cells, they headed for the door. All the men went for the fence, but when the guards in the towers started firing, all the men stopped except Kenneth. Kenneth made it to the fence and up and over, avoiding gunfire the whole time. It must have been a sight to see Kenneth raising his hands in surrender on the other side of the fence. But as the gunfire halted and as the guards prepared to go take back their prisoner into custody, Kenneth took off, running in a zigzag until he got to the forest. Kenneth hid under a log for three days while guards searched for him. Even the dogs couldn't locate him. But after those three days, Kevin came out from hiding under his log and headed over to the barn, eating grain from the cows and drinking their milk. He hid there in a haystack, which I just totally pictured to be something out of like a silent film, you know, with like lots of hijinks in it, him hiding in the haystack. So Kenneth hid in his haystack for another eight days. When he found that the searchlights had cleared, Kenneth knew he had to cross the sound or go back to prison. Jumping in, he swam quite literally for his life. After about an hour, Kenneth was tired and cramping. Slipping below the surface, it seemed this was all over. The sound had defeated him. But it was at that moment that Kenneth felt his toes touch bottom. And on his toes, Kenneth struggled to shore. I love this story. I found myself really rooting for Kenneth while reading this. But Kenneth broke my heart when I read that three months later, his escape was in vain when he robbed a bank and was returned to prison. The most famous of the McNeil Island escapes was Roy Gardner. On September 5th, 1921, it was Roy's third escape from prison, not just McNeil, in two years. Gardner and two other men, Bogart and Impian, I probably butchered that, they had joined forces. They were waiting for an opportune moment and found it during a prison baseball game. It was a dramatic moment in the fifth inning. Everyone was distracted. They ran and cut a hole in the lower part of the barbed wire fence and slipped through. They ran a ways and got into an open field when the guards in the towers started shooting. Impian was killed immediately. Bogart fell and would die later on that evening. Garner, only having a minor injury, ran into the woods to hide. He spent a few hours hiding under a log, but quickly moved to the barn, filling up on grain and milk. When it was clear, 
Gardner made it over to Fox Island, where he laid low and stole food from local farmers. He headed to Oregon and then Arizona, where he would be caught in the fall of 1921. Although having a prison on an island is a great idea in theory, it is hard to maintain in practice. The costs associated with running a prison on the island are very high, and ultimately what led to the closure of McNeil Island in 2011. They did what is referred to as a cold closure. They simply turned off the lights and walked away, leaving the prison buildings to the elements. But there were two cases that changed Washington's outlook on pedophiles being let out of prison and back into society. And this is how the Special Commitment Center was formed. In 1988, a sex offender named Gene Kane abducted, raped, and murdered Diane Balasotes while he was on a work release. And in 1989, Ryan Allen Hayde was raped, mutilated, and stabbed and left for dead. He was only seven years old. His attacker, Earl Schreiner, had a long list of sexual offenses under his belt. The boy survived the attack, but was left mutilated for life as he had lost his penis, unfortunately. This sparked outrage in Washington. People were shook. They wanted reform to their system. People did not want sex offenders released back into society after their prison sentences were up. A mere five years in some cases. And that's how the Special Commitment Center came about. A separate building was built to house these offenders. Although the residents are kept at the facility against their will, enclosed by a barbed wire fence, the commitment center is not a prison. The sex offenders are not inmates. They are referred to simply as residents. The center has therapy and mental health programs available, but the residents are not forced to attend. One big difference between prison and the special commitment center is who is running it. The SCC is run by the state's Department of Social and Health Services, not the Department of Corrections. One resident, Laura McCollum, served her five-year prison sentence and then an additional 25 years at the SCC. She had performed oral sex, rape, on a one-and-a-half-year-old girl that she was babysitting. Laura admitted to gaining the trust of victims' parents, growing close to them to get to their children. She later admitted in therapy that she had abused about 14 children. Although I don't sympathize with Laura because of her crimes, I did have a little sympathy when I heard that she had tried to get help from a therapist. I don't know that this was before committing any crimes. Um, it seems to be prior to at least her last crime. She did admit that she had these feelings toward children, and it does seem like it was an attempt to get possible help, but how much help is there? I am always a believer that we need a better mental health system in this country, but granted, how do you help somebody with that has these feelings? I mean, I just don't think that we have figured this out, that our mental health professionals have figured this out. It needs more research. We need more mental health treatment. And you can't put somebody in prison for the, you know things they haven't committed or put them in like this special commitment center for something that they have only thought about but haven't done wrong. And it seems like maybe that should change. You know, maybe if somebody is having these feelings, they can kind of disappear for a while, go to a special commitment center, spend five years, get intense therapy. And see if maybe that helps. I mean, 
something has to be done. But regardless of any help that Laura tried to receive, she is an adult and knew what she was doing, and she's still offended. But Laura claims that after 30 years, she's a different person, a person that would not offend again. And when I look at my own life, I feel that people do change, and 30 years is a long time. I am not the same person that I was 30 years ago. I just wish that we could predict which way people would change if people would be a danger if they left these places. It is such a hard decision, a dangerous decision, deciding whether to keep a woman locked away or set her free to possibly prey on others. That is not a decision that I would want to make. And Laura, a sex offender, didn't grow up in the best possible way. Laura was removed from her parents' home at the early age of two. Placed in an abusive foster home, she was failed by the system. Laura was only 16 years old when she gave birth to her foster father's child. Failed by her parents, failed by her foster parents, raped and abused, Laura went full circle. Laura was given release in 2020. Some people don't agree with what the Special Commitment Center is doing. Some believe it's a violation of constitutional rights to keep people locked up after they have served their prison time. I personally believe that every state should have one, and 19 other states have gotten on board with this idea and gotten Special Commitment Center-like facilities. Mental health treatment for sex offenders sounds no less than fantastic in my book, especially when you look at people like Laura McCollum's life, and think about the impact of sexual abuse and how it seems to spread like a disease. And hopefully less victims will mean less future victimizers. That concludes our podcast today on McNeil Island. If you liked it, please hit subscribe or follow. Please don't forget to join us Wednesday. Me and my friend Mandy will be doing a podcast on a murder together. You can follow us on Facebook, just search our name. You can find us on Twitter at coffee murder underscore. Our Instagram is coffee murder mystery. And you can email our Gmail at coffee murder mystery at gmail.com. And that's all we have for today. Stay safe. Evil people are everywhere. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee Murder and Mystery. A true crime.